Well, welcome to episode 21 of The Professor and the Hack with Professor Peter Van Onselen and me. I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Remington. And uh, a bit delayed this morning because I was off getting a mandatory uh, drug testing uh, <laughs> PVO. And uh, I feel like I would have rather been doing that. I was at the US consulate. What's worse? We'll get on to the US consulate <laughs> and what your devious purposes are uh, before too long. I'll tell you what they mainly found in my, uh, in my extensive drug history was uh, a lot of pseudoephedrine because I think it's this time of year when the uh, hay fever kicks in and absolutely bloody gets me, I tell I'm you. I'm glad you clarified that because I wasn't sure where you were going with all that pseudoephedrine running through your uh, system. Mate, mate, I'm so pure. I'm so pure these days that I can afford to be like a fusty old grump who can sit there and say, yes, drug test a lot of them. You're as pure as the driven snow? Is that I'm, I'm, we don't use the phrase snow. It has all kinds of <laughs> connotations, that, uh, Colombian connotations. But um, yes, I live an extremely dull life and therefore probably am appropriate for welfare because uh, you can't get welfare or will not be able to get welfare, it seems, until you've been drug tested. And uh, Jackie Lambie has brought the numbers across uh, for the government. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So they're trialling it around Newstart as I understand it, uh, with the potential for it to go wider than just a trial because we've seen a trial around the welfare card, which is now going wider as well. No doubt we'll get to that too. But, yeah, Jackie Lambie, she's on board, but but she is only on board as long as politicians also get drug tested and maybe not just politicians, Hugh. Well, she, she also has now sparked an absolute run of every politician uh, all announcing their absolute eagerness to be tested for drugs. Well, because uh, if they don't announce their eagerness to be tested for drugs, everybody by implication assumes something, if they, they? If they look at remotely dodgy. So we've got uh, everyone from the IPA's uh, senator from Victoria, um, uh, James, James Patterson. Patterson, who looks like uh, probably a few wild parties might not do him any harm. <laughs> and uh, Barnaby Joyce, who, uh, who occasionally looks like a few wild parties uh, have gone on, although I suspect alcohol might be the uh, <laughs> uh, the, the drug of choice for Barnaby. Um, uh, certainly no alcohol. Whole testing, though, I assume. No, none of that. But, but there was Barnaby Joyce saying, yeah, test me. I'm up for it. That would be a fascinating one would be for them to have alcohol 0.05 testing as you walk into the chamber to vote. I wonder how some of them would go on the later night votes. We don't have as many of them now in the more family-friendly federal parliament, but certainly over the years and certainly in state parliaments, one would wonder about that. It's funny, isn't it? Because there was a time when being uh, three sheets to the wind was a, uh, a fine Australian tradition. And uh, we we don't uh, give license to the same degree as we once did to well, the notion that we'd all be lunching on liquid lunching or, or carrying on as soon as uh, five or six o'clock came on. And I know some of the some of the people that work in organisations like, for example, the mining companies, where a lot of their workforce have to be tested for things like alcohol and drugs because they're using heavy machinery and so on. That actually gets extended to a firm wide proposition. So. Uh, when it comes to having lunches, even their sort of corporate affairs and government affairs sections, you know, they've got to be careful. They're not even allowed to have a, a glass of wine over a, a lunch that might be that kind of corporate shindig because they are under the same rules uh, as the manual operators within the organisation. It's funny because when you see policy coming in and becoming law, which is where this one's headed, it, there are sometimes unintended consequences and there are sometimes quite wide social consequences as a result of this. So what we are talking about is the notion that you don't get new start unless you are willing to submit to uh, drug testing. Mm. And this is the tough love type of approach uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, floated all this up there. Scott Morrison has taken it forward. But uh, Jackie Lambie, who has said politicians should also be tested, no one minds that. But she also tweeted out, and I'll quote directly, if the government is saying that welfare recipients should be drug tested because they're on the public purse, 
then by that logic, everyone else being paid by the taxpayer should also be subject to drug testing. Why just pick on poor people? So she's extended that well beyond politicians to presumably everyone from ABC radio hosts to, um, to judges uh, should be uh, mandatorily uh, drug tested if they are to stay on the taxpayer purse. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Do you think that would actually meet with public approval? I think it probably would, uh, or at least some of it would. Maybe not once people started to realise that almost all of us in some form receive taxpayers' dollars somehow, so therefore all of us are going to be getting tested. But I, I do think there would certainly be a public sympathy for it around things like politicians and judges because it's the partly it's the tall poppy syndrome Partly it's avoiding the idea of them being uh, well, hypocrites or, or not allowing themselves to go through the same rules that they impose on others. I don't necessarily have a problem with a trial around drug testing, although I do feel like it, there is a frustration that it always does seem to be, as Jackie Lambie is alluding to, uh, lower socioeconomic groups that get targeted here. The justification is always, well, that's where we have higher evidence of drug taking, so therefore it's inhibiting them getting a job, so let's do something about it. But really, uh, I was having this conversation with my wife over the weekend, actually. Where does this ultimately go? Is this a stick approach in that if you get drug tested and you don't reform or you don't adhere to the to the rehabilitation that is then required, you then have the punitive measure of having your new start removed what impact does that have, you know, both on the individual but then also on what they have to turn to and do if they aren't receiving their welfare payments? Is it a true stick or is it the illusion of a stick because, because it they raises, can't ultimately do it? Yeah, it raises the obvious question that uh, a good number of people are taking drugs of one kind or another that are legal drugs and if they are found to have that in their system, quite right, you then cut them off from all sources of legitimate income and then you get a, even more you know, ice-addled people with no source mm. of income except that, that, that they can roll out of the uh, God-fearing members of uh, society and muggings and so on. And well, the thing that I find ironic about this debate is we've got two halves to it. We've talked about the trial around New Start with drug testing as well as with other forms of testing potentially to follow. But then you've got the welfare card, which has been trialled and is now about to be, if the numbers are there, rolled out. Uh, with the return of Parliament legislatively for everyone to have this card that basically requires 80% of all of your welfare payments are run through this card, which prevents you from being able to use it on things like alcohol, gambling and so on. But here's the irony, Hugh, at least in my mind. Doesn't the welfare card mean you don't need to worry about the drug testing? Because the welfare card means that you can't spend 80% of your new start on that sort of stuff anyway, because you're getting it quarantined to only be allowed to spend on, you know, grocery items or whatever it might be. But that goes to the the reality out there, and that is that people have alternative sources of income in the black economy. But then it ceases to be, as a intellectual exercise, it ceases to be about the taxpayer funds to be able to force the drug testing on New Start recipients. So why does the state think it has the right to do it if it's not ultimately about ensuring that taxpayers' dollars are not being spent on things like illicit drugs. You hope that at the bottom of all of this there is some actual study taking place on what is effective to make sure that it's not just punitive beating up on poor people, as Jackie Lambie puts it. So um, I wonder what the actual stats exist 
what, what well, there's not a great deal of evidence. There. There's apparently. not a lot out there at the moment, and there's a lot of anecdotal stuff that the government's willing to say that, in fact, it has resulted in lower levels of drug taking, of lower levels of domestic violence. It'd be, you know, and if that was the result, lower levels of domestic violence, of course, would be a wonderful goal achieved. If that is a reality, then you'd say, well, that might be a very strong argument for it. Well, I see. I saw a study that talked about how dentists are one of the professions with the highest level of uh, of drug use, I believe. So should we have dentists getting tested? I mean, if it's not about the state money going to these recipients, which just as a matter of logic, it can't really be because that money is being quarantined now under the new welfare card. Why, and, and you know, whether it's dentists or doctors or anyone else, you know, they receive taxpayers' funds. That's the Jackie Lambie point. Why are we targeting, and I agree with her about this, why are we targeting poor people? I think that there's a lot of political rhetoric in this decision-making. I had a dentist once got struck off after, right? yeah, because they found him as a dental nurse, came back early from lunch, and he was uh, off his chops on uh, some of the drugs that they had inside the system. I think it was the nitrous oxide. So uh, maybe you've got a point there. That's... I never understood why people, kids were so afraid of the dentist. My dentist used to give happy gas even just when cleaning your teeth. So I used to, I mean, this is now sounding terrible. Why are we recording this? I used to love going to the dentist. You know, all these other kids would talk about how painful it was. I'd walk in there and the next thing I knew I was as relaxed as Larry and, you know, I didn't even know whether I was getting a a clean or a filling, quite frankly. I was just out to the world. What a great image that is (laughs) of an eight-year-old PVO with with, with neatly trimmed beard. Well, I don't know what the rules are around this now because, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. But, yeah, my my first memory of my dentist, and he was very good, I thought – for years, I never understood what everyone was worried about. I used to love going to the dentist. But anyway, I found out otherwise. Drugs once. more children I more found, often, is it? I did find out otherwise once when I turned up and he'd run out of nitrous oxide. And of course, because I'd never experienced it without it, I just went, oh, I'm sure it's fine. Oh, my God. I always checked after that every time I went back because it hurt like hell. Do you have the gas, doctor? Do you have the gas? <laughs> and the reason he'd run out probably was he was taking one of those. Uh, not we stopped a, using a, it. I changed lunch. dentists. He stopped using it. I changed dentists. <laughs> Well, look, Jackie Lambie, let, let's let's dwell on her for a moment because she was in Parliament. She got kicked out, of course, under the citizenship issues and then she found her way back into Parliament again at the last election. She is actually... Um, she's doing Tasmania pretty well at the moment. They're getting oh, good yeah. value out of her because she's in such a prime position to extort all kinds of prices <laughs> out of the government. Extort. That's, 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 dem- that's our democratic system in operation. It's, it's legal extortion uh, is, is what it is. Yeah, she's become the new Brian Harradine, hasn't she? I mean, for anyone listening that doesn't remember Brian Harradine, he was an infamous uh, senator out of independent senator out of Tasmania for years during the Howard years in particular where he used to get all sorts of deals and he was absolutely unashamed about it as is Jackie Lambie. Uh, State representative, none of this sort of making it look like this is a general goodwill thing that's being done and it just so happens that your state gets more than somebody else. No, no, no. He, just like Jackie Lambie now, elected to represent the Senate for Tasmania, I want X, Y and Z and the latest for Jackie Lambie to do the deal to get the income tax cuts through that the government was so desperate to do after the election. She said, and we've now had this confirmed and there was reports about it on the weekend, she said, I'll only do it uh, if the state debt around housing supply gets wiped. It comes in with interest in, I think, around about $220 million. And the government agreed. Of course, you, know, you can imagine the government's running around saying, well, you know, uh, the state government had been lobbying about this for a long time because it's a Liberal state government, uh, yada, yada, yada. But in reality, this was all Jackie Lambie. If she hadn't held their income tax cuts to hostage uh, to the wipeout of state debt to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, 
it wouldn't have happened, Hugh. No way. So you know what she said out the other side of this, the lesson she learned? She said, next time I won't go so cheap when doing negotiations. That's her lesson. So you can imagine Matthias Cormann and Josh Frydenberg as they're trying to craft their surplus for the next financial year and beyond, looking at that thinking, okay, well, the cheapest Jackie Lambie gets in a deal is $220 million. Absolutely. She'll be walking down their corridor. She's got three years to absolutely have them there by the uh, the fiscal short and curlies. And, well, uh, six, I suppose, if they get reelected. Well, de- yeah, depending on what the, the numbers are after the next, uh, sure. yes, after the next Senate, because you, you, the, the, you know, being in a position to, to actually be the swing vote, you know, never lasts well, too she long. Might get, she might get more candidates. I mean, it's possible that the Jackie Lambie party, because uh, she's an independent, but I think she may have set up her own party. If she hasn't, she she will again. Uh, you would think she's half a chance of getting another candidate up at the next election when she's not up for re-election. Who knows? It's fascinating. Well, um, the general economy is in a is in a, a dire place, and the most powerful people um, pulling the levers on our economy are somewhat in conflict about where we're going to go on that. We'll take a very short break, and we'll talk about some of that in just a moment. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. We're talking to amazing women doing extraordinary things. Short Black, with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack with me, the Hack, Hugh Rimmington, and The Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Now, PDO, we've got an interesting state of affairs, really, because the Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Philip Lowe, is one of those peerless public servants, supremely bright and very, very shy, not one to go out and uh, bang his drum around the place, but he has been ever so gently banging the drum. He's been out allowing himself to be the subject of big, long feature interviews uh, for the what we used to be called the Fairfax Press, now the, I guess the Nine Print Media, with uh, Peter Harcher. And, um, and he's got some fairly subtle little messages he's trying to send the government about how to get us out of this terrible mire that we're stuck in of very low growth. I think he's frustrated from what I can see with his commentary with the lack of serious economic reform. I mean, I know the government likes to say, oh, you know, income tax cuts or whatever else they're doing. But at the core of the frustration of the Reserve Bank government, I think, is that there's just not enough serious economic reform. Now, I know that the headlines over the weekend incorporated a lot of him defying the Prime Minister on infrastructure spending. You know, the PM says we're hitting the, 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 the cap on what we can actually realistically do with costs and all the rest of it. Uh, attached to it, the Reserve Bank Governor says, well, actually, I think we can do more. So there's a direct contradiction there. Good luck to him. That's what you want, free and fearless advice. I'm pretty sure the PM said something about that in his restructure of the public service. However, uh, I think the real message coming from Philip Lowe is the frustration at the lack of particularly federation reform, but also tax reform writ large, because the economy needs it. Uh, It needs more than just a steady hand, would be the way I would put it, and the fact that he's prepared to speak out, good luck to him because he's in charge of monetary policy. He's dropped uh, the interest rates to their new historic low, 1%. Not a lot of room to move there. He wants to see stuff on the fiscal front, whether it's stimulus or whether it's reform. But he, of course, can only ask for that. He has no control over it. It does go, doesn't it, to the fact that uh, Scott Morrison, of course, as we've talked about in the past, has uh, one power with a fairly empty cupboard when it comes to a reform mm. agenda. And I guess what's happening here is is a little signal that, um, you know what, you've done really well by not offering a great deal. Tax cuts is a fine thing, but 
it's not really tax reform, it's just fiscal mm. drag handed back, really. So it's time to get on with it. And the pressure then goes onto Scott Morrison, and the question is whether he picks that up and, uh, and with Josh Frydenberg and the rest of the team decide that they are going to be a government in this term which is going to attempt to do something substantial to, uh, to essentially grease the wheels. I've got a prediction for you, and we know on this podcast that predictions and I work well together. But Do we have a gong in here? We should have a gong. <laughs> we can bang for a PVO prediction. I don't think, for anyone listening directly or indirectly on how this prediction goes, I don't see this government embracing major reform in this term or beyond. I don't see it either, but isn't that Well, you're in on this one too now. Yes, that's true. I mean, I'd be delighted to see if there was a little boldness. I don't think that they're lacking in intellectual capacity within this uh, government. You know, you can go into all these historical comparisons. Is this as good as the cabinet of the, you know, the first Hawke governments or whatever? Um, I I don't think that's even necessarily helpful. But they've got enough brains in there, some grown-ups in there, that they should, if they want to, put together something which uh, genuinely addresses the difficulties that exist within... um, our economy and also the huge disruption coming to our economy through uh, automation and AI and all those other stuff that Josh Frydenberg has been hinting at in his recent mm. speeches, but he hasn't really embraced in a policy sense. They're not going to do it, I, I think, because the Prime Minister is not an ideologue, not in a major way, certainly not around economic reforms. When he was Treasury, he was interested in GST reform. I think we might have talked about that before, but it got hit on the head by Malcolm Turnbull. I don't see him going back there, certainly not without a mandate and certainly not in search of a mandate when you've only got 77 seats to start with. They're in their third term, even though he feels like a first-term Prime Minister. Reform normally happens in a first term of a new government, not in the third term of a government with a third Prime Minister, however surprising his last election victory might have been. So he's not an ideologue. They're stuck in a third term and they're a conservative government. And I know we look at Howard and the amount of reform that he did around IR and around tax with the GST and what he supported in opposition around microeconomic reform. But conservatives don't tend to be big on reform. This is more of a Menzian or a Fraser-esque style of prime minister that we've got now. And I don't see him going big on the reform front. I see him presiding. And here's the last key point. I think they get away with it for at least a term, maybe more, because if the economy tanks and if things get tough, they say we're the better economic managers. That's what the polls tell us. So therefore stick with us through the tough times. It might get it, catch up with them eventually, like it did for Fraser as things got bad by 83, but it works for a while. If, however, things go well and gangbusters and, and we get out of this sort of global quagmire that seems to be happening, then they take credit for it, even though it's really just you know, the cycle, and they say, hey, trust us on the economy. So everything from the delivery of the surplus to the potential to pay down debt uh, to if the economy goes well or badly, I think it all just works for at least a term or two for this government, and that just makes them look at economic reform and think, well, you know, we don't necessarily feel strongly about it, and it's risky. It's always risky with the electorate. It's funny, isn't it? Because there's probably a whole bunch of people across middle Australia who'd probably breathe a sigh of relief at the prospect you've just mapped out there and said, you know what, we're sick of bloody reform. Mm. Uh, Just keep the wheels turning and where possible, give me my share. uh, But at the same time, doesn't it seem a little not quite enough that, that they've got this opportunity whether they're a third term or a first term honeymoon Scott Morrison government, you know, it's, it's, you know, you can look at that from both ways, but, but doesn't the country need something a little better than that? I I, look, get rid of the politics of this. 
economically in terms of what we need and in terms of policy imperatives, I think the country does need reform right now, even if the public don't like it or don't know it, quite frankly. We need serious reform. We're at the end of a period where we've lacked it and we've always been great as a country in staying ahead of the curve, uh, well, certainly since 83, both sides of politics at various moments. So that's what we need. But politically, I get where this government's coming from. If your aim is to stay in power and to retain power, which at the end of the day, politics is nothing without being in office, I don't think that they have the authority and the might that they have the perception of having. There is this massive perception, you know, this unwinnable election that Morrison won, his authority, he can do anything now, take that out for a run. It's only 77 seats. I mean, in a 151 parliament that we now have, if you want to have the speaker and a majority, that's the bare minimum, 77. And that's all he's got. And today's news poll, for those listening to it, Monday, uh, 51-49, that's actually close, even though Albanese's not that popular himself. So my point is that in a pure electoral, political, cynical sense, I get why Morrison would look at this and go, whoa, Third term, 77 seats, tough economic climate, the public don't like reform. You know what? I might just sail through here and and get myself another term. I don't doubt it'll work for him. I think he's a better place, as I've said before, I think he's a better place than anyone since Howard to to build um, election victories simply because he, to my mind... Uh, you know, somewhat blandly meets many of the requirements of the Australian electorate in terms of where he sits on lots of things. But then if Australia does need reform, and if it's not going to come from a Morrison government with Frydenberg... Who's going to do it? Is it going to come from Labor? Because Labor tried all kinds of reform things, got absolutely caned, got handed their backsides, and now do you think there's a lot of energy going on? That this is There's certainly going to be no Whitlam-esque, there's going to be no Hawke-esque... Um, effort going into the next election from Labor saying, hey, we can fix this country up. They've been too badly burned well, for that. But there wasn't there – wa- I, I don't think we will see the reform that we need. Let me explain why. But there wasn't uh, an allocation of pending reform in 83 when Hawke won. He won as a small target and then he just did it. There wasn't in 96 when Howard won, but he won and then he just did it. So the Hawke microeconomic reforms – the Howard tax gun reform obviously had a certain bent to it with what happened with Port Arthur, but also IR reform. There wasn't any flagging of this in opposition. But, but, but here's the difference. Today, Hugh, I think if you don't flag it, you get hammered because, you know, Gillard tried it without flagging the carbon tax adequately, got hammered. Abbott tried fiscal, well, fiscal tightening at the very least through the budgetary process without having flagged it and got hammered. Uh, so I think now we live in an age where if you don't flag it, you get hammered in government. But if you do flag it, like Bill Shorten did... You don't get government. You don't get government. So we're in this awkward quagmire now where I don't know where the next round of major reform comes from because Labor, as you say, will be gun-shy. And if they get in and try, they'll get hammered if they haven't flagged it. And they won't flag it because Bill Shorten tried that. And how did that work out for him? Yeah, I do wonder whether there might not be. I, I totally agree. Everything you've said is completely convincing to me. But I, but I do think I need that happy guess now. You know, yeah, that's, that's that happy guess is working for me too. They don't test for that, do they? <laughs> um, one of the the things there though is that, as you say, that Hawke came in as a small target, then made these changes. Morrison has got this freedom of movement because he came in as a small target. Uh, he he does have a capacity if he's got the will, if he's got the vision, if he has the right answers. Um, He's got that ability to do it, whether he's... Um... You know what I think he'll do, though? I, I, because he's a marketing man by way of background and he's a party operative by way of background, New South Wales State Director, 
I don't think he'll do the big reform, but I think he'll pitch it that he has. Yeah. <laughs> so what? So it's almost worse, right? I mean, I think he'll convince people that he's done some major things, you know, whatever they are, uh, and he'll be very good at selling that, that, you know, this has been a do-all government, you know, X and Y and Z. But in fact, I don't think he will do a lot of that. Not the kind of disruptive stuff that can actually bite you, but he'll he'll spin it. You know, he'll use his marketing background and he'll spin that he's achieved all these various things, but in fact, they won't be like that. And he won't, in fairness to him and conservatives, they won't mind that. They won't see that as failure because they see their major job is to keep Labor away from the Treasury benches. And Scott Morrison succeeded on that front at the last election, so his aim will be to do that again at the next election. Yes, and part of that is, you know, he's definitely done stuff that's satisfying to, if you like, the talkback radio, Yep. Uh, you know, the Tamil family and the the uh, uncompromising line on, on the Villa Wheeler uh, Tamil family, but also the stuff even on the, the you know, the welfare card and the, the drug testing, all of that is absolutely red meat for the base. So... Um, at the moment, he's probably where he wants to be in the polls to the degree that they're giving a ringing endorsement. They're probably not, but there's a sufficient endorsement to what he's he's doing. Now, um, far more importantly, PVO, uh, you're a good-looking man and you dress well, uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing you in I haven't a... fitted into my suit since the election campaign, but we'll move on. Well, well, you might have to let out the white tie because I think you're off to um, to Washington with Scott Morrison for the big state dinner. You make it sound like I'm his date. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, apparently he didn't even vote str- for same-sex marriage. You, I, I couldn't be his. Date. Well, they're struggling to find people to fill the tables. We're told because uh, too many Australians who are in the United States have had uh, arch things to say about Donald Trump, so they won't be invited. So Josh Frydenberg find- amongst them. That you can't really bring the deputy liberal leader, can you? Since he called Donald Trump a dropkick, yes. is he going? <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's bizarre. The theatre of it is wonderful. I remember the uh, uh, John Howard uh, trip. It when you he were got, on that? No, I didn't. I didn't go there. I just remember the pictures. But uh, uh, I think I was in Hong Kong at the time. But but he he got the state dinner there with George W. Bush, thanking mm. uh, Howard late stage for being the man of steel through the Iraq uh, and Afghanistan adventures and so on. And um, but it is a reminder that, uh, you know, Britain has its pageantry. The French have their pageantry. But the United States, in their own way, throw on a lot of this uh, gloss of the great heart of American power. And they're going to give it to Scott Morrison, the first and only state dinner that uh, Trump has mm. offered up to a foreign leader other than Macron. I don't have to wear the white tie, though, do I? I'm just the hired help. In fact, I'm not even the hired help. I'm just the string-along journalist. You know, we don't have to sit down for the dinner or anything. I can just wear a suit, surely. Well, actually, probably best that you don't put on the uh, the uh, you know the black tie or something, otherwise people will start calling you over and demanding their drinks be filled. Uh. <laughs> but, yeah, look, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to go. It's also the, the, the PM's new plane. Uh, the first time that we've had more than just a 737. So we've got the, I think it's an Airbus A330 that's been converted. Uh, so all the media gets to go with the PM. Apparently this has always been an issue. I've never done it before, but apparently it's always been a bit of a pain in the backside for the media because the PM with limited seats on the old plane would hop there on his own with his staff and then the media would have to sort of commercially get there however they could. We're now all apparently going to be on this much larger plane uh, do you get your taking own, its first Do you get your own flight. four poster bed down the back? No, for the I'm long pretty flight? sure that the journos all get chucked in economy seats at the back. Uh, re re allocated Qantas ex Qantas economy seats. My hope, though, Hugh, is that 
there's a lot of these seats so I can put the armrests up and maybe do something resembling sleep on the way over. I've got a bad back from my cricket days. So it's actually an issue for me if I fall asleep in the wrong position. But I don't think that's front of centre on the PM's mind, unfortunately. No. Uh, seriously, do you know how he travels? I mean, he, he, he's got a, he's got so a room. So he'll have a suite? He's got a suite. He's got a room. I assume his own bathroom as well, but certainly his own room with an actual bed in it. Um, so, you know, he's nice and comfortable. No, no worry there. Uh, it's just the rest of us. That, and, and I think there's some, you know, lay flat business seats for all of his staff and entourage. Um, but I think the journalists just get oiked in the back. I think it's very bad form, you know, because you're going to get a whole bunch of really grumpy journos and they'll all, all <laughs> yeah. see how they can get it out of their own system. And they'll, well, it was they'll funny. Have a crack at you. One of his staff, uh, who shall remain nameless, told me that we're not allowed to take photos or video inside the plane. And then he sternly told me when he was in the Bureau last week, uh, and if that happens, uh, that's it. You never fly on the plane again. To which I turned around and said, is that a promise? You know, because, you know, what a wonderful missed opportunity not to get to fly in the in the, in the the crappy economy seats at the back of this hunk of junk yes, you, you can take uh, that's some been QF, converted. You can take some QF something else up the pointy end, which is entirely where you deserve to be. <laughs> but I do think that uh, my sympathies for Jackie Lambie are going up by the moment as I think of him sitting in his grand suite at the front of the plane and thinking, hang on, that's on the taxpayer's dime. At the very least we can do is, is demand that he gets drug tested. Drug well yeah don't 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 uh, don't 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 drug test and alcohol test everybody as they get off the plane uh, maybe when they get onto it. True enough. Uh, I think he probably runs on sharky euphoria most of the time. Scott well, apparently Morrison, it's a converted. His... Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but apparently it's a convert. It, it was a Qantas A three thirty. It was then converted to a freight plane. It was then converted to a fuel retanker, and now it's been converted back to be the PM's long haul. Uh, RAF plane. You can all get high on the fumes. Yeah, well, I mean, God only knows what we're going to encounter when we sit on this thing or step onto it, but we'll see. I'll send a photo so I never have to go again. As long as there's some happy gas to see you through. PVO, uh, we're out of time. Thanks for that. I don't think no one from the PMO is listening. We shot shot very little light into any dark corners there, but um, anyway, thanks for listening. This is The Professor and the Hack. We'll see you next time. Bye. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hey, hey, you. Yes. You. Yes. Do you listen to podcasts? Not yet. Well, you bloody well should. What should I listen about? We have some 10 Speaks podcasts you might be interested in. What kind of podcast do you like to listen to? I'd like to listen to one spoken by two men in a small booth about Western Australian sport. Well, we have the Western Front, actually, with Tim Gossage and All right, I'm Lockie over Reed. that. Do you have anything about homes now? I want to know about homes. We have Hammer at Home with Barry Dubois. Sorry, I can't hear you over The Bachelor I'm watching on television. Could I watch anything more about The Bachelor? No, you can't, but you can listen to The Reality Bite. That's a weekly look at The Bachelor action with Georgia Love and Shura Taft. I like Hugh Rimmington. Is there any way to listen to more of Hugh Rimmington? There is. Do you like Peter Van Onselen? Yeah, I like Peter Van Onselen. Well, you can hear Hugh Rimmington and Peter Van Onselen. Do you mean Professor Peter Van Onselen? That's the one. Yeah. They're talking politics in The Professor and the Hat. Politics? I don't want to hear about that. Well, you should. Okay. Well, I'm in. If you want to hear any of these, search them in your podcast player of choice. They're 10 Speaks podcasts. Have I convinced you to listen to some podcasts now? Yes. Well, hurry up. Okay.